This is episode four with sports psychologist Martin Hager. Welcome to the Process of Success podcast. My name is Tom Scolle, former professional cricketer, now athlete mentor and online entrepreneur. Each week, we're going to discuss what it takes to achieve success so that you can use the tips, techniques, and tactics to become your best. Whether it's sport, business, music, relationships, or anything else, this is an insight into the minds and lives of some of the world's most successful people. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now let's get into today's episode. It's a change up for us in this interview as I step away from cricketers and instead interview a sports psychologist. I'm pumped about this interview with Martin Hager as there's so many practical mental conditioning tips and techniques that the world's best athletes use that you can use yourself. Martin is a professor, psychologist, sports psychologist, lecturer, speaker, author, researcher and athlete himself who travels the world researching the mind and human behaviour. In this episode, we discussed the mindset that separates the absolute best from those that aren't quite as good, why teams or individuals choke, how to deal with anxiety and fear, how to shut out mental distractions while competing, how people can motivate themselves by setting goals, how people can build confidence into their games and lives, plus a whole lot more. This is an awesome episode that I'm sure you're going to find very interesting, so let's get into it. G'day guys, welcome to the Process of Success podcast. I'm here with Professor Martin Hager, also psychologist, sports psychologist, lecturer, speaker, author, researcher. Now I hope I've got all of them right. That's right. Thank you for joining us, thanks very much. Um, now I'd like to start these interviews by taking our guests sort of back to their childhood. Um, just to try and get a little bit of a picture of what that was like. Um, you've, you're English, where were you born and where did you grow up? So yeah, I was born in Kendal in Cumbria, so in the north of England, uh, but I grew up just north of London, so in a place called Letchworth. Um, and then I also spent a lot of time abroad, um, so some of my schooling was in Singapore, and some of my schooling was in South Africa as well. Lovely, and how long have you been here in Australia? Seven years. Enjoying the West? Uh, de- definitely, definitely. It was, uh, it was a little bit of a risk, a little bit of a challenge uh, to leave all my friends and my job and all that sort of thing back home, but coming over here, I've not looked back. Awesome. Now, you're a sports psychologist, as I've mentioned, amongst other things. Were you an athlete as a kid, or what sort of um, got you into sports psychology or the interest in sport? Yeah, so when I was pretty young, early teens, uh, I started just doing a bit of running, just keep, just keep fit, really. And then I got heavily into triathlon. So one of my dad's friends was very heavily into triathlon. And um, so, yeah, then I went for it in a big way. And uh, I, I think I did. I reached reached a reasonable level. So, um, and I think you know, through being an athlete, I became interested in the kinds of factors that influence performance. So I was very much influenced in, uh, interested in physiology. So all of the physical aspects to do with fitness, training, that kind of thing. But I was also in, interested in the mental side of things, particularly. So I was very interested in uh, what made the difference between people who are basically pretty highly trained and you know if you looked at the differences physiologically they'd be pretty level and yet some athletes were more were were consistently performing better than others and so I was interested in you know what was it that made that difference and that led me down the road to psychology 
And is that what you studied at university? Yes. Well, yeah. So I studied I studied um, sports science uh, at Loughborough University, which is pretty much the big sports science university in the UK. Um, and through that, I sort of gained further interest in psychology, and then I studied my my PhD uh, in sport and exercise psychology uh, at Loughborough as well. Excellent, excellent. Now, you did a, a, a talk at TEDx here in Perth, um, which was published on YouTube in January 2013, which is how I first um, heard about you. Um, it's now had over 755,000 views. Um, so firstly, well done on that. I did not know that. <laughs> well done on putting out such an interesting um, piece. Um, and guys, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. So make sure you go and check that out. It's really, really great. Um, now, how did that come about and did you have to do any specific research for that or was that all on the back of your, your previous knowledge and, and your training? Uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, what happened was um, just prior to the 2012 Olympics in London, um, Curtin did a special seminar series on sort of performance aspects related to sport and I did a talk on sports psychology because they knew that I did a little bit of that. Um, and that was, that was actually published on the net and uh, I think some of the organisers at TEDx kind of got hold of that and said, why don't you come and do this, this talk? And, and I was completely unprepared for, for the experience of doing a TED talk. Um, and actually it was in the days where TED talks were kind of in their, up and their infancy, yeah, and so, so I sort of just showed up and was expecting to kind of wing it. But you don't realize that actually those talks need to be very, very clinically, very well prepared. You've got 12 minutes and you know, you've got the clock right there in front of you and you've got your, your slides and that's it. Um, and, and I was totally unprepared. And uh, they did the rehearsal. <laughs> I can remember the director sort of saying, needs work, Martin. <laughs> so I spent, I spent the rest of the week trying to get it you know, down pat. So the rehearsal was a week before? Yeah, it right. was, yeah, yeah. So I got a, I got a week to really to prepare, because actually I didn't know what, what was expected. Fortunately, we did the rehearsal. And, and so yeah, I mean, most of the stuff I drew from the experience that I had in terms of studying sports psychology, my own observations, because I'm sort of a keen, you know, sports, avid sports watcher, and, uh, and also, you know, my own experiences as an athlete. And then, uh, uh, yeah, then I did the talk and I got it down pretty, you know, in terms of the timing, got it down straight, straight away, you know, because it, the, the clock sort of tick counts down and I got down to one second and, and I ended and I was like, that was, that was, you know, my preparation went to, to a T for that talk, you know, Perfect. I don't normally get things right, <laughs> that day I did. Excellent. Well, well done. It's, um, yeah, like I say, it's, it's been a huge hit on, on online, so well done for that. Now, for those of people that are listening or watching who don't know much about sports psychology, what is sports psychology? So it's the application of sports psychology theory and practice to understand, uh, predict, and hopefully change uh, athletes' performance. And the idea is to use certain mental skills, uh, techniques, uh, that athletes can take and use by themselves to make their performance better. And I think many people's kind of conception of sports psychology is that it's for basket cases, it's for people who have problems with their mental preparation. And yes, it can help with that. People who, for example, suffer from too much anxiety, they, they suffer from the yips, those kinds of things. 
but actually sports psychology is for all athletes and actually you'll see that um, you know a lot of professional sports teams are now you know fully embracing sports psychology and they will have a sports psychologist on the team who will work with their athletes uh, pretty much all of the time to get them into the perfect frame of mind the optimal frame of mind so that they compete can compete at their best all of the time or, or you know in all of the sort of big competitions because it, and especially in professional sport these days you've got to have optimal performance almost on a yearly basis you know you talk about a season a season can be as long as a year these days and so you know there is there is this kind of this notion that you have to be mentally prepared for ev every time you go out on the pitch or on the field or whatever absolutely and as well, I've come to learn in, as I've progressed throughout my cricket career, it's been, the, the mind controls the body. So the training really should be invested in the mind to, to as, as much, if not more, than the body. Now, in your TED talk, you discuss um, how winners, guys like Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps, who have, have been very, very successful athletes, how they get it right both physiologically and psychologically. Um, if you were to get in the mind um, of a winner, um, what do you think separates them the best from the rest or those that don't quite get to that level? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think at, at the elite level um, and at the absolute elite level, um, you know, above and beyond, you know, excellent training, obviously natural talent. Uh, I think, you know, having a, a very strong mindset, a mindset that is, I suppose, a winning mindset is the, is the difference between winning you know, gold and coming forth, for example. Um, and a winner will have, you know, extreme confidence. And um, they will not only expect to win, they'll, they'll also have all of the things that they need to do planned out, mapped out in their mind, often many years in advance, um, as to, to what they need to do to, to get to the, that top level, the, the, the optimal performance. Um, they will also have certain skills, so they will use techniques which are tried and tested um, and those can be things like um, using imagery, they can be setting the appropriate goals, um, they can be things like managing stress and anxiety. Now, how athletes manage those things might be slightly different, so you look, actually the, the two examples you gave, you look at the sort of just observationally, you look at the, the way they prepare for their events uh, is very different. So Phelps is much more cerebral, he wants to be completely alone, he uses music to kind of shut out all distractions, very focused. Usain Bolt is completely different. So he's engaging with the crowd, he's very extrovert, um, and, uh, and he uses that, he uses that to motivate himself. And if, and, but I think the result is the same. It gets them into a relaxed frame of mind, a frame of mind where they're, they're confident, that they're focused. Um, and so even though it sort of seems that, you know, how can these, both of these athletes um, have such different, you know, preparation, and yet they, they have the same performance, actually they're doing what works for them. And that's another feature of a top athlete they will know what works for them and they will have tried it time and time again. And you can see actually, even though Usain Bolt looks like kind of relaxed and he's, you know, you know, he's kind of interacting with the crowd, he's very extrovert, he's doing all of these sort of gestures and that sort of thing, actually he does the same thing all the time, right? And if that didn't happen, right, then he probably wouldn't be in that frame of mind, actually. Um, and the same with Phelps, you know, if things don't go that way, then he would be distracted and he wouldn't perform 
to that to that level. So all of those things make up this sort of um, this mindset of a winner. And then there's, there are other things that are sort of also bubbling under the surface. So there are certain personality types uh, who make you know who are likely to make good athletes, elite athletes. And usually there's sort of some self-selection there. So those pe kinds of people who are performance-oriented are attracted to sport anyway. Um, and so it's things like extroversion, it's things like conscientiousness. Um, those are the sort of personality traits. Openness to experience, all of these personality traits tend to kind of be generalized influences on, on people's performance. And very, very interesting. Now, on the opposite side of that, what is a reason, you mentioned in your TED talk again about how Brazil lost to Mexico in the Olympic yeah. final. What's a reason teams or individuals may sort of choke under pressure or choke in big moments or get the yips? Yeah, um, sometimes it's, it's very, sometimes very difficult to put your finger on exactly what it could be, but it could be a number of factors. So one of them could be lack of preparation. And I don't mean lack of preparation in terms of training and those kinds of things. They'll almost certainly have those things down pat. Um, it's more about training for the particular situation. If you go into a, a tournament and you expect to win, right, but you haven't trained for that particular incident or that particular context, then the, the athletes may be, may, be, uh, may be distracted by the extent of the situation um, and as a result that might pull them just off path. Uh, in terms of their performance, so one example might be if you're, you know, if you reach the the final of a of an international competition, whether it's soccer, whether it's cricket, whatever, um, and you know there is a sort of idea that, that the stadium should be neutral. Okay, so usually if it's, big, if, it's, if it's a big final, the stadium might be a neutral one, uh, and both sets of fans, both teams, will be away fans, but actually. Oftentimes, the, the, the stadium or the, the, the venue might be pretty close to one particular team or another, and so they might have ma many more away fans than you'd expect, and they ma manage to get hold of tickets. And so, actually, the game ends up becoming a home game, effectively, from a, from a spectator's point of view, from the, uh, from the opposition. And if you're not prepared for that, if you haven't scouted that in advance, then you could be shocked by, for example, the partisan nature of the crowd. And we know that crowds have a big impact, impact, a big influence on, on, on athletes' performance. Now you can train for that, right? More or less, you know, through imagery, through um, talking it through with a sports psychologist or a trainer, that kind of thing. But if you haven't done that, then that could, could upset your performance. So I think the things like the weight of expectation and when the, the, the weight of expectation exceeds the athlete's ability and resources to cope with that expectation, then it leads to high stress. And high stress is extremely distracting. And I think that's what happens you know, maybe to the Brazilians, maybe uh, in, in cases where you know, think about Rory McIlroy and some of his, his performances. Um, you know, he's an outstanding golfer, but when the pressure is on, particularly when he's expected to win, uh, it can lead to sort of almost cat catastrophic declines in performance. Yeah, now you've mentioned expectation and pressure there. For any sort of, of our athletes that are listening, how do, you, how do you recommend athletes deal with that pressure or the expectation 
um, that they probably are putting on themselves at times. Now you've touched on um, pressure and expectation. Um, how do, um, for the, those people listening, how do people, or what would you recommend people do to deal with pressure or deal with the expectation that they often um, put on themselves? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, what makes a, a, a good athlete an athlete which is uh, uh, extremely successful, they're the ones that are using mental skills um, and use them consistently um, to get themselves into the optimal frame of mind to perform well. Now, actually, some athletes do that intuitively. So they have a, in some respects, it's a talent. Yeah, so they're, a, much, they're much more able than others, for example, to cope with adversity. Uh, when, thing, when the chips are down, when things don't go their way. And also they have the flexibility to deal with setbacks. Do you think that's a personality trait? It could be, it could be. Uh, uh, yeah, and I think there, that, there is that, that level of flexibility. You know, psychologists talk about sort of executive functioning, which is your capacity to be able to manipulate variables and memorize variables and, uh, and make judgments very quickly and rapidly. Um, according to sort of changing scenarios, and and that's that's certainly a, a, a possibility. Um, but you know, anybody can train these kinds of things actually to get better, and so and that's where the sports psychologist comes in. So even somebody who's intuitively reasonably good at this kind of thing can improve, um, and then those people who struggle with that can also improve, and uh, and so that's again that's where the sports psychologist comes in. So you know. A lot of coaches and team managers are now switched on to this. They talk about, you know, you talk, you've heard Clive Woodward talk about total rugby, and you talk people like Dave Brailsford, who's, you know, basically, no, nothing, they talk about these sort of marginal gains. Nothing is left to chance, and that includes mental preparation. So all of the athletes uh, should know exactly what they need to be doing. They need to have this so-called pre-performance routine. And a lot of the things that sports psychologists, or one of the main things that sports psychologists work on is the athlete's pre-performance routine. And this is not sort of saying, okay, this is what you should be doing. It's working with the athlete to say, okay, what is it you normally do? And what will work and what, what won't work? And it's a question of trying it out. Just like you would train you know, your body and you train your, your skills and all those kinds of things uh, to get your, yourself into to top shape uh, physically uh, and skill-wise for, for an event, you do the same for mental preparation. And so those pre-performance routines are, are critical. And, you know, for sure, most athletes have gone through that. Uh, and you look at the way in which they perform, they often do very much the same things. Um, and, you know, that, the same also applies for, for, for individual and team sports. You know, individual sports are much more sort of contemplative. Um, you know, we talk about the distinction between uh, Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps. That's a couple of good examples. Uh, but teams as well. Teams will also have their pre-performance routines uh, and will need to go through them prior to, their, to their, um, their event. And then, of course, there are other skills that athletes can work into those routines. And, you know, not only just before, but during the event as well. So things like imagery, things like self-talk, mantras, um, things like anxiety management, relaxation techniques, um, focusing techniques, so the mantras are very good at that, so basically keeping your attention on the right things, the right cues. And I think there's also this notion of, of being, of sort of self-awareness, so being aware of your surroundings, not getting, basically not letting your mind wander. And that's, you know, you look at, you know, tennis is a classic for this. So you see a, a, a tennis player, a very you know, top-level tennis player, will be playing extremely well. They'll, you know, they're almost in a rhythm. 
But then something happens that distracts them. And actually, the whole thing sort of seems to go to pieces. Maybe they'll pick it up again at the end. But it takes a lot of refocusing. And if you're not focused, then, then those distractions mean you, you actually miss what you're normally pretty good at in terms of the cues to perform well. So what, are the, what, is, it, you know, what is it about, for example, the, the opponent's positioning uh, and the way they're holding the ball, the way they're holding their racket, and those kinds of things that give away you know, where the next serve's gonna go. All of those kinds of things um, may, you know, obviously they're critical for performance, but if you have a distraction, then that's gonna, that's gonna lead you away or make you less focused on those critical things, uh, particularly when, it's, you know, when, when the pressure's on, when they're, they're the, the critical moments in the, in the game. And so in a, an example of, say, a penalty shootout where there's five players from each team taking a shot, do you think the ones that succeed, obviously taking a penalty is a pretty straightforward skill, but when it's under pressure, playing for a World Cup or Olympic um, gold medal, whatever it is, do you think the ones that succeed are the ones that are able to just not let their mind go to a distraction and the ones that are able to go back to their routine or their pre-performance um, trainings? Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Um, and actually, yeah, penalty shootouts are a very good example um, because they're an example of a skill that you know, most footballers can achieve pretty quickly, pretty easily in training. Uh, and the odds are stacked in favor of the striker, not the goalie, right? Um, and actually, you know, I think a, a lot of goalies actually kind of like penalty shootouts because the pressure's to some extent off because actually the, the, the player's expected to score. But actually, you know, we look at penalty shootouts, they very seldom go the full, they very seldom go to sudden death, actually. And so there is something about that situation, that pressuring situation, that even seasoned professionals, you know, highly paid professionals who do this all the time in training, you know, fail in that moment. And, and I think you're right. I think distraction is, is one key aspect. And the, the, the sort of sense of pressure is something which is, which is distracting. It takes your mind away about, you know, from what you should be doing. And what that leads someone to do, it's actually kind of, you sort of think, okay, you think, well, concentration is really important in that, in that um, situation. But anxiety and pressure and stress, particularly in relation to distractions, can actually lead to, to a player overthinking the, the skill. And when you overthink something which is actually very automatic and something which you've trained, you know, so often, actually it becomes, it, it, it falls apart because your, 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 your thinking or your thoughts are much slower than the skill itself and the automatic nature of, that, of that, that action. And so that's where the distraction comes in. And so what you need to do is to just try to block out all of that, that, uh, that external noise and keep focused. And the best way to do that is to train for it. Okay, and so you can train for penalties. Now, you know, I remember Glenn Hoddle, England coach, he said, oh, we, he said, we don't train penalties because you can't train for that. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just something that happens and it's, it's a high pressure situation. You can't prepare someone for that high pressure situation. Now let's just take a break for Martin for a minute. In last week's episode, I interviewed Australian fast bowler Nathan Coulter-Nile about his journey. So you hear a lot of people talk about um, when they're bowling well, they're not thinking about anything. And I find that it just really annoys me because <laughs> to get to that space is really hard to get to a space where you're just running in, the ball's coming out well. It's really hard, sorry. Um, so I find a, a routine for me works a little bit better and it's not a routine where I stand at the top of my mark and touch my leg and like Steve Smith smacking his pads or anything like that. I, 
I literally just make sure I'm concentrating when I, before I run into bowl, so I want to know what I'm bowling. And then when I've set my mind to that, I know if I'm looking at the spot that I'm concentrating. As soon as I drift away and I look at the batsman or I'm not looking at the spot, ball starts going a bit everywhere and I sort of know to myself I'm not, I'm not switched on. Now, let's get back to Martin. You can't prepare someone for that high pressure situation. And I was like thinking, well, maybe not that specific situation, but you can come pretty close, yeah. right? And, you know, sports psychologists will work with athletes, you know, they'll get them and they'll talk to them. They'll say, okay, this is the moment. I'm gonna describe the moment to you, close your eyes. So it's kind of like a visualization and imagery technique. Close your eyes, you know, it's, you know, penalty shootout, semi-final of the World Cup, and there's uh, 80,000 people in the stadium. Half of them are crying, you know, supporting you. The other half don't want you to score. And you've got the opposition goalie, you know, think about you're on the penalty line, sorry, on the halfway line, you walk up to take the penalty. You know, all of those kinds of things. So he's talking the athlete through that scenario. So they get it to their head. And it's about making it as real as possible, isn't it? Exactly. And that's and that's that goes back to what, you know, the sort of, you know, Dave Brailsford, um, Clive Woodward aspect. Leave no stone unturned. Marginal gains and basically, you know, leave nothing to chance. Prepare for everything every eventuality um, and so you need to have that natural thinking you know it's all about it's not only just about okay we know we know what we can control we know but it's we all you've got to take into account all of the what-ifs you know what if this situation arises what am I going to do because the you know the problem with with those kinds of if you don't prepare for those aspects when something happens that is unexpected there's no there's no plan there's no backup okay and so therefore the athlete can let be left flummoxed. You know, you can prepare for certain things, but you've got to take into consideration those situations which might be distracting, might be unexpected. So it's basically kind of you know, preparing for as many unexpected situations as possible. And now overthinking is something that happens a lot in cricket. We get contacted by a lot of um, athletes who say, oh, I overthink it. Myself, I've been guilty of it as well. Um, what are and that's obviously consciously thinking and you were talking before about just executing and blocking out the external noise that's more of a subconscious performance what are some sort of mental techniques you, you could recommend to someone who is an overthinker I mean that's that's it, it may be different for different athletes but there are certain sort of techniques that tend to work for most athletes so relaxation is one of them um, so often um, pressure distraction those kinds of things they all go hand in hand and so taking the pressure off the, off the athlete um, can, be, can often make the difference, okay? And so relaxation techniques are things like, you know, meditation, relaxation beforehand, um, you know, lying down, listening to music, um, and those kinds of things. And you, you see a lot of athletes actually using that, particularly in individual sports. Um, so that can be very useful. Um, having a pre-performance routine is very useful as well because that gets you in the frame of mind. So, so then, you know, any kind of event becomes quite routinized, and as a result, um, you know, to some to some extent, every game is I wouldn't say the same, but at least you're doing the same things, and so the sort of um, the distractions become less pronounced. That's the that's the that's the idea, um, and and also preparing the athlete for those those any unprepared situations. Um, getting them to visualise the situation is also very important. So those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah and I, I sort of talk a bit about with my athletes just going back to trusting themselves and not 
I think when they get in the conscious thinking mind, they try to tell themselves what to do. If they can get back to trusting themselves on their preparation, that really makes a difference as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. And I think you'd, you'd probably also agree, you know, if I get, let me think back to training. Let me think back to my preparation. Oh yeah, I've done all that. You know, I've done it before and I can do it again. So getting people to kind of think about all of the successes that they've done, to think about the training and all the work they put in, uh, kind of reinforces that. And I'm, I'm sure you found that sort of, yeah, thinking about, yes, I've done this before. I've got, you know, I'm in good form, you know, all that kind of thing. Recalling those successes gives you that confidence to, to, to go forward. So that, I think that is about, like you say, trusting yourself, trusting in your own skills. Yeah, excellent. Now, you talk in your TED talk about um, motivation and how um, the most important thing for an athlete's motivation are the goals they set. What advice um, would you give someone watching or listening about goal setting and, and um, are there any other ways that people can motivate themselves? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, whatever level you're at in terms of sport, having goals is extremely important um, because at the end of the day, that's why you do it. Now, you know, for a recreational athlete, that might just be participating. It might be, um, you know, to get, to get, you know, if you're, if you're a fun runner, to get, to get over a, a, a particular distance or run, a, run your event in a particular time, for example. Um, and then, of course, you know, all the way up to elite athletes, they will have specific goals. And... I think what's important and what's often neglected is the, the, the distinction between um, sort of achievements, performance related goals and sort of personal uh, intrinsic goals. And actually, I mean, they kind of go hand in hand, but in order, to some extent, in order to achieve the sort of performance goals, the intrinsic goals are extremely important. So, you know, Actually, an athlete will, most athletes will probably say, well, they're disappointed in a loss, of course, but if they played well and they gave it everything they could, that's still, there's still an element of satisfaction in that. And I think, you know, the idea is that if you do all of those things right, you know, as often as possible, then you're much more likely to achieve those performance goals. So having those sort of, I don't know, um, intrinsic goals, um, you know, sports psychologists call them sort of mastery or technical goals. So they're basically um, things that you would need to achieve and things that you can gauge your performance on um, above and beyond just winning and losing. Would it be more about the process yeah. than the result? Yeah. yeah, and in last week's episode we had Nathan Coulton-Isle on. He spoke about, I asked him how he bounced back from bad performances or bad games and he spoke about he didn't actually bother him too much on how he went in the game if he'd got his process right and he ticked all these boxes leading into the game. And I think where people go wrong, and you'll hopefully back me up on this, is with the goal settings, if they set, I want to win the championship or I want to win, score 100 runs or whatever, and they don't f focus on their process. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think there, is, there is a tendency for that. And, and then, you know, a player's head can go down uh, if, if they're setting sort of these performance-related goals that may be either unrealistic or they're not taking into account the sort of the opposition or the situation and, and, and so on. Um, and but but you know having those perform so those process-related goals, the mastery goals, uh, to fall back on, they're almost as, uh, like indicators that you're moving forward. So and, and you you need some way of gauging that and that you know the best goals are the ones you can measure that you can gauge for yourself. You can track your you know, personally, that yeah, I'm making gains, or I know that was a good performance. I didn't, 
you know, I didn't fail in that regard, even though I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, achieve the number of runs or score the number of goals or you know rebounds or whatever. Um, the sort of the, the objective performance indicators are. Yeah. Now I've read a little bit um, about willpower, and I think you've done some research on that. And I understand um, that. Uh, we have a little, we have a limited amount of willpower each day, and if we sort of exhaust that, then then it's harder to stop ourselves doing things we may not want to do. But what are your findings on willpower, and how how can athletes um, maximise or utilise willpower? Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, interesting theory or perspective on on willpower or self control. And yeah, the idea is that you, we have you know this finite resource of self control, and that allows us to do all these amazing things, particularly. Uh, working towards long-term achievement-oriented goals, um, in you know, sacrificing the kind of more short-term pleasurable things that we we probably prefer to be doing. So it enables us to kind of work towards you know studying for exams, you know, getting a job, and performing well in sport. You know, um, and but of course it is finite, and you know if your self-control resources are low, then you could be vulnerable to temptations and so on. Um, and, you know, we've done some research in this area and certainly certainly in real-world contexts, it seems to kind of chime quite, quite nicely. Uh, there is some controversy in the literature, um, in, particularly in terms of lab-based studies, that actually the effect might not be real at all. So this idea that, that willpower is limited may not be the case. And there's some very interesting research showing um, you know, the extent to which people believe that their willpower is limited actually affects uh, their performance. So if some people think that their willpower is unlimited, that actually they tend to be much better at tasks that require willpower. So that's a very interesting notion. Mm -hmm. um, and, but you know, certainly in the studies that we've done in the real world, so I'm talking about, for example, um, people who are trying to manage uh, temptations when they're that when they know they have to well particularly people like smokers and and people who uh, eat too much for example um, they are very vulnerable to lapses in self-control and so we need to be able to try to manage their environment so that those temptations are not or we need to get them to manage their environments so that the situations that queue up those behaviors don't arise or that they've got some strategy or awareness that yes, I'm tempted now, but I've got an alternative pathway. So yeah, we found that for, for people who have basically problems with self-control. And so it works quite nicely in real world situations. And then athletes can certainly use this as well. So athletes who find that, you know, if they, if they know they're gonna do a particularly hard training session that they don't particularly like, but they know it's gonna get them to a particular goal, um, but there are some distractions and temptations, to recognize those and to have some sort of uh, strategy to manage those situations. So for example, um, using self-reward, um, being self-aware, being aware of those temptations and trying to come up with a, a strategy uh, to manage those. Such as saying, okay, well, I, let me think about my responsibility to my goals, my responsibility to my teammates and so on. Excellent. Well, um, you've just touched again on self-awareness, which you did earlier as well. Uh, how much importance do you think um, self-awareness has on an athlete's performance. Yeah, I think um, it's it's certainly it, it's important, and it, it relates very much to things like attention and concentration, uh, which is obviously critical in in most sports, um, probably all sports actually. 
um, and um, the, 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 the consequences, the deleterious consequences of lack of attention or, or lapses in attention or concentration can be quite marked on performance. Um, and, and, and they can just be quite momentary. So getting the athletes to be able to, to pay attention and to concentrate is extremely important. And so there are sort of you know, techniques that people have started to use to try to manage that. So things like mindfulness uh, and, and self-awareness. Um, we talk a lot about self-monitoring. So a person's capacity or ability to sort of monitor um, when they might be lapsing in their concentration and to kind of come up with strategies that they can use in situ to kind of move their, shift their attention back to their, to what's, what's important. Is that monitoring done by writing it down in the moment or is that by sort of making a mental note and then sort of coming to it at the end of their session or how, how do you sort of recommend athletes do that monitoring? Yeah, it's, I think it's important in training to do that uh, and you know one thing is to perhaps get feedback from uh, an observer. Yeah, so um, your coach, trainer, um, you know, technical coach, whatever, if they're watching what you're doing in training and they notice the situations where you might be lapsing, because you won't necessarily be aware of that, but someone from the outside can often see that. And actually, if you're, a, if you're an armchair athlete, if you watch a lot of sport like I do, um, you can also see that. And actually the commentators say, oh, you know, so-and-so is, is, you know, their concentration's gone. And actually it's quite obvious to, to, to us as, as spectators or the coach or somebody who's observing from the outside, but actually you might not notice it. Or you know something's arrived because performance is going down, but you don't know exactly what it is. And so, you know, a coach can work with the athlete to identify those situations and then come up with strategies in in the, the, the training sessions to manage those so that when they, it comes to competition, they'll know, oh, oh yeah, I am getting distracted now. I'll go back this to what, what works. I'm, yeah, this is what I'm gonna do. So there are a number of things you can do to do that. So it could just be a mantra, just to be focused, you know, and just say, right, whatever the word is, whatever the, uh, the cue, the self-identified cue is that brings you back to that concentration, that, that, that level of concentration, uh, or, it might even be sort of saying, you know, um, whatever, you know, whatever the cue is, uh, uh, then, then that, that might be important. And uh, Tim Galway, who was a, quite a sort of very influential um, coach, tennis coach, he was just, he kind of, he never really kind of uh, focused on specific skill learning. He used to get them to hum. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And, and then the classic one is the bounce hit. Yeah. So it's literally say bounce, hit. And yeah, really simple, but actually, if you look at uh, kind of sports psychology research, a lot of it is about very simple strategies to keep people's focus. Because actually, at the end of the day, a lot of these things are relatively simple and straightforward. It's not that difficult to concentrate. But actually, in you know, when you've got all the other performance parameters and the adrenaline is pumping, you're highly aroused because of the situation, uh, there may be fatigue in the, in the, in, into the mix, those kinds of things, of course then you've got distraction. Um, all of those things actually make very simple things difficult. Uh, and so, so having those kinds of ready-made strategies to manage those situations is extremely important. 
And now you've just said that it's not that hard to concentrate. Um, would you say that in this day and age, especially with younger people who are growing up with social media and smartphones and, and they often flick between one thing to another and, and I find myself guilty of it, I flick between tab to tab to tab and I sort of, I can't sit still for, for long. Um, it's only worse in the younger generation, but you look at some older people who didn't grow up with phones and they can quite happily sit for, for an hour and watch a sporting match without checking a phone or without doing something else. Do you think it's only going to get harder for the younger generation to focus their attention and concentrate? Um, well, I think if the distractions are there and if you learn, because I mean this is all about learning, so you pick up these habits, like checking your phone or talking to somebody, whatever it is, you pick up these habits because that's what you normally do. And, and actually, I mean, you're right, you know, smartphones are designed that way. Smartphones are designed, you know, I think there's, there's sort of data on how long someone spends on a particular screen. It's, it's all very quick, very rapid, you know, when you flick through, you know, Twitter or MySpace or, you know, Facebook, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's all very quick and fast and it's fast responses and all that sort of thing. But that's, you just become conditioned to that, right? So you just, that's just the environment, okay? And so I think there is uh, a, a, a strong case to be made for, you know, n not having those distractions. And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of saying, well, we should just ban smartphones or anything like that. But, you know, you need to be aware that actually that is going to be a distraction. So manage it, right? And, you know, if coaches are seeing that that's happening, they can put a stop to it. And they can do it in such a way so as not to seem like they're killjoys or anything like that, or, you know, fuddy-duddies who are kind of anti-kind of technology or anything like that. But they can explain to athletes, athletes are not stupid, they can explain that if you are distracted, you will not perform well, right? And it, it's, it's, you know, it's, again, you know, it would take a very stupid athlete not to understand that. Yep. Right, and so I think those again. It comes back to leaving no stone unturned. Total sport, you know, making sure that anything is not nothing is left to chance. That everything is covered, and I think that that includes the way people kind of use technology or you know whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, nice one. Now, fear is a massive factor in sport. People get um, fear of failure, fear of letting people down, fear of being judged. Um, all of this creates tension in the body and creates anxiety. Um, and anxiety management becomes a really important aspect of sports performance. What are some ways that athletes can overcome um, anxiety or fear? And I suppose it's, it's very similar techniques that you've already mentioned a, a number of times. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, these techniques have been tried and tested you know, by athletes over the years. Uh, again, it's not, you know, it's, it's not, they're pretty simple techniques. It's not sort of rocket science. They're pretty simple techniques. And if you look at sports psychology literature over the years, much of the, the research and the skills that people are using, a lot of them are the same. And so, yeah, anxiety management is all about things like relaxation. There is a sort of notion that, that, that um, there's an optimal level of anxiety that is, effective for performance uh, for, for each individual athlete. So some athletes can perform extremely well um, under high levels of arousal. In fact, the more aroused, the better, to some extent. Um, whereas other athletes, they need that state of relaxation. They need that relaxation uh, in order to perform well. So, so it, it can be kind of like, a, there, there are different zones of, um, 
uh, of optimal performance in terms of anxiety. And the classic example that I always give is, um, I remember watching a race, I can't remember, I think it was one of the world championships of athletics, uh, and again, it's, it's sprinters, and, and um, Dennis Mitchell, the US sprinter, uh, he, he, he always looked like he was up for a fight. You know, he was slapping himself, uh, shouting at himself. Um, you know, he wanted to be as pumped up as possible. That's, that's, you know, and you could see it. You could just see it in his eyes. It's so obvious when you look, you're looking at it uh, on TV. And, and the, you know, then you sort of go to the next lane. And I remember Linford Christie, the British sprinter. He would, he would be almost in a meditative state. His eyes would be sort of closed and he would just be so calm. And it, it, it was almost like it was sort of, it was sort of trance-like. Huge contrast, like you're just, just sort of two lanes apart. And, um, and yeah, of course, they both performed extremely well. And that obviously comes back to self-awareness, knowing what they need to do yeah, to right. get themselves. And, and the performance routine that they know works. And so, so levels of anxiety uh, will vary across athletes to so what they, they prefer and what they perform best at. But you know, again, that self-awareness is important because they might not know, mm. right? Or um, yeah, in, in fact, they might not go through all their career and not realize what is optimal and what is not for them. Um, and so it's about training, it's about preparation, it's about talking, for example, with a sports psychologist, it's about having someone observe your performances uh, and to really kind of know how you get on with, with different levels of pressure and different levels of anxiety. Nice one. Now, confidence is a huge um, factor in performance, not just sport, but all walks of life. Um, how can people build confidence in themselves? Uh, I think you hit it on the head sort of earlier. It was about, you said sort of, well, trusting yourself, trusting your own performance. And that sort of, that, that is pretty much, that, that might be uh, synonymous with confidence. And for me, um, and if you look at the kind of research literature, confidence comes from a number of things. One of the main things is uh, successful performance in the past, recalling successful performance in the past. And you get, and that's where you get that trust from. Say, I know I've done this before. I can think back of, to all of those positive performances. And so getting people to reflect on that gives people confidence. Imagery. So imagery is, um, to some extent, it's almost like what they call modeling. So if you, one of Bandura, who's a very famous uh, social psychologist, his ideas on self-efficacy, so self-confidence, um, was that if you watch other people, if you watch other people doing something successfully, then you should be able to model that, because that's the way we generally learn things. Um, imagery is kind of an extension of that, so actually you become a self-model. So it's imagining yourself successfully performing the behavior. That's extremely important, so that will give you confidence. Uh, feedback. Yeah, positive feedback. Whether that comes from, you know, something, some sort of um, statistics or outcome that you can see as you progress in your event, that gives you confidence. Um, basically, being able to monitor success. So that's extremely important. Um, and but you can also get that from from other people, from your teammates, and so on. So that's really important. Um, and so I think those are the sort of things that would build confidence in, a, in an athlete or in a team. And um, I think belief goes hand in hand with confidence. Yeah. If, if you believe in yourself, you feel confident. Do you believe, do you believe in affirmations to build belief or build your confidence, reinforcing that self-talk? Yeah, I, believe, I, agree, I do agree. And, um, and athletes, 
have used mantras, affirmations, uh, you know, self-talk as ways of getting themselves in the right frame of mind before an event. But again, also as we spoke earlier, it also helps you kind of refocus. Uh, and so it can have a number of different functions. The most important thing for me is that athletes train with that. So it's not just something you say, you know, today, go out and go out there and you know, your mantra is focus, right? It's not, it doesn't work like that. You've got to use, and it, you know, it might be different words, different, different uh, uh, codes, different ways of, of using it for different athletes. And so it's about working with a, with a sports psychologist or a trainer or somebody who's versed in these techniques um, over the course of a season or over the course, you know, during training. It's not a question of kind of just, just, just using it, you know, um, on a whim. Yeah, and now having sort of been a sports psychologist for a while and studied uh, successful people, what are some routines and habits that you've seen in, in some of the world's best athletes? Yeah, so um, some of the examples, you know, I've been watching sport over a number of years. Um, examples of people, like, again, Linford Christie is a good example in terms of his sort of meditative, meditative approach. Michael Phelps in terms of listening to music, so that's a good, good example. The TED Talk, I think I gave an example of Yelena Isambieva, a Russian pole vaulter, world record holder, uh, Olympic champion. She, um, she basically shuts everything out, right? And so that, that works for her. And there's a sort of quite comical picture of her kind of covering herself in towels and just relaxed. But it gets her into the state of mind that she's ready to perform. Um, and um, yeah, another kind of athlete, uh, field athlete, uh, uh, Blanka Vlasic, uh, who's a high jumper. Uh, she goes through a very kind of sort of almost staged set of movements and routines prior to jumping, and it's the same every time. It looks kind of a bit weird. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of kind of, you know, field athletes are actually very good at, you know, you, you can kind of watch this quite, it's quite a good study in kind of pre-performance routines. And, but it works, it works for her. Because it's, you know, it may look weird to you and me, but actually it's all about her rehearsing what she's about to do. And it gets her into that right frame of mind. And she's done it, you know, hundreds, thousands of times before. So, so that makes a very good athlete in terms of their mental preparation. And then, you know, all of this sort of stuff. I mean, there, there's there's many more things you can kind of go into, and often those those focus on quite practical things about sort of thing. You know, all about sort of preparation for major competitions. So, make sure, making sure that equipment, uh, transport to the event. Um, you know, accommodation, all that sort of stuff is managed. Now, you know, athletes have teams around them to manage those kinds of things. But if things don't work out, then you've got to have plans and, and be prepared uh, for, for, for those eventualities. Um, and, and, you know, that can often be down to the manager. Um, and the athlete has to work with those people in order to get things right and make sure it's, that they're clear on what they need to be doing. You know, because everybody will have a role, everybody will have a job. And if something goes wrong, right, then the athlete ultimately is effective. But even though it's effective in these days, even in individual sports, it's a team event. Mm. Um, now, you've just spoken about getting in the right frame of mind, and, and something that's referred to a lot in sport is the zone, um, which is generally when an athlete has an outstanding performance. Um, the way I understand the zone is sort of about, there's many factors, but it's about um, getting your attention into the present moment. How do you advise athletes get into the zone and, and sort of 
get themselves into that optimal state? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's often sort of the zone or, um, uh, you know, um, people talk about a flow state. That's the kind of buzzword and, and the sort of technical term that's, that's been used. Is actually quite, um, it's sort of quite an elusive concept. And, um, but yeah, a, to some extent, a sort of mindful performance. But almost, you know, almost it sort of, it sort of transcends that. People feel that almost it's effortless. Like they're not, um, they don't have to think about it. Um, even yeah. though actually phys physically they might be putting in a whole bunch of effort, but it almost feels automatic. It feels like, you know, they don't need to put in that effort. But the effort is actually effortless. Um, they often say that they can't remember what happened, don't they? Yeah, that, that's also very good. Very, that's often, uh, you hear reports of that, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, to get someone into that state, it's often the things that we've been talking about. Um, and so it's about making sure preparation's right, the pre-performance routine, um, training, get, and, and sort of, you know, thinking back, if you think back, you know, if you're, if you're reflecting on past performance, giving yourself confidence, that's really important to do before an event, but not, when you're just about to go out on the field or when you're just about you know, to get on the start line, right? So all that sort of stuff needs to happen before. So when you're on the start line, you know, what you need to be thinking about is the event ahead, yeah, the match ahead. So those are the kinds of things that, that people need to do in order to get themselves into that sort of automatic flow state. Sometimes, um, I mean, I, I, I think there's an argument that actually you can't really it, the, 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 actually, the sort of flow state or in the zone is kind of, that doesn't happen all the time. And it, it's kind of like a, an alignment of a whole bunch of different factors. You know, there are things that are to some extent beyond your control. Things like you know, biorhythms, um, you know, circadian rhythms, those kinds of things. You know, people can have off days, those kinds of things. But people can have great days. And it just sort of seems that, that you know, all the preparation and some factors which are actually beyond your control all sort of align in this constellation to get you to that, that almost perfect performance. And, 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 and so, so what you need to do is control all the controllables. And, um, and you know, their science is always improving. You know, people are now trying to predict their biorhythms and target events where they're, 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 on, a, they're on an upward curve, those kinds of things. But actually, I think, you know, the, those are seldom things you can actually control. So, so my view is that if you can tr control the controllables as much as you can, get yourself into the right frame of mind, use your pre-performance routines, increase your confidence, use the things that you've tried and trained, your mantras, your affirmation, that kind of thing, then you're going to be successful. You're more likely to be successful. You're more likely to get into the zone. Yeah, absolutely. And then again, I think it comes back to trusting when you get there that yeah. just you've done it. Yeah. You're ready. Yeah. That's right. And make the most of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, we're getting towards the end, but before we wrap up, you've spoken about relaxation and, and relaxing. Um, a lot of people need to do that, bring their heart rate down. Do you have any sort of breathing techniques? The breath is a, is a great way for people to sort of focus their attention on the present moment, but also to relax. Do you have any breathing techniques or, or things you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, look, there are a lot of things that, uh, a lot of different types of um, yeah, breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, 
to some extent similar to meditation that people have used in the past. There are very good videos on YouTube that have, uh, that have this. So it's where you basically you sit down in a, in, a, in a darkened room and you relax, you find, find yourself a, a quiet, relaxing place, and you just focus on your breathing. There's also um, research, not research, um, uh, yeah, videos, uh, strategies that people have used uh, to that, that sort of combine breathing with other sort of relaxation techniques like uh, PNF, which is basically um, uh, contracting your muscles, uh, you know, to a, to a great extent, and then relaxing and doing that progressively. So you start at your feet and you move, work your way up your body, and then you also do some breathing exercises to relax yourself. So all of those things athletes have used in the past to try and relax themselves. Um, and, and they, they can be quite useful. They don't work for everybody, right? And so it's a question again of trying them out and seeing whether, whether that works for you. And you know, that's true for a lot of these things. You know, for some people actually, you know, some of these techniques leave them cold. That really doesn't work for them. And in that case, you know, put it to one side, move on. You know, there are, there are other strategies that you can use and that you might find works for you. So it's a question of kind of finding that sort of optimal set of strategies that works best for, for you. Having said that, you know, the research says that most of these techniques work for most, most athletes most of the time. Can't fight the research now. Um, you've done some research or a paper on perfectionism. Um, I actually wrote an article a little while on that and I see it a lot with um, the athletes I work with where they, they expect themselves to be at their optimal level every single time, and if they're not, they get very frustrated and down on themselves and critical, very judgmental. Um, what have you found with your study on perfectionism and how does it affect um, athletes? Yeah, um, so perfection is actually, to some extent, multidimensional. So you have um, sort of personal goal strivings, which is actually kind of, kind of an adaptive form of uh, perfectionism, uh, which is actually basically setting yourself for fairly high standards, um, and but recognizing those high standards, um, you know, are, are are things that you know you don't often you strive for, but if you don't achieve them, then 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 you have something to fall back on, like these sort of mastery goals. And then there's sort of a, a sort of maladaptive form, which is um, basically. Um, striving uh, and being dissatisfied with um, your performance and so on all of the time. So much so that actually it might end up with you avoiding the, the, those situations. And actually people with that kind of, that type of perfectionism, um, they actually end up, they either set themselves very, very high goals, which they're not expected to achieve, and so actually they kind of got an excuse, I didn't achieve that, but you know. Or they set themselves very low goals, and actually they're always going to achieve them, right? And actually, you know, those are kind of, that's kind of maladaptive from a, a performance point of view. Because what you want to be doing is similar to the sort of adaptive side of perfection. You want to be setting goals which are challenging, um, difficult to achieve, but not impossible, and realistic. And so, and again, that goes back to the whole goal setting thing. Um, so so I, I think a level of perfectionism is a good thing because it means that effectively the athlete cares about it and, and that uh, they want to pay attention to the details because they know that ultimately you, know, you need to pay attention to all of those different kinds of things in order to 
to achieve optimal performance, but not at the expense where people are starting to avoid those situations. So one strat so strategies that, that can help manage that is helping them to set appropriate goals. Um, also getting them to monitor what is a good performance and what's not a good performance and talking it through with the athlete. Um, and again, you know, these kinds of goal setting are things that are, should be agreed between the coach and, and the athlete. Very seldom, you know, that's often something that's said, but that's very something very seldom done. And, um, and, and, and so, so actually, very seldom do coaches sit down with their athletes and say, okay, you know, what are we going to achieve this season? Mm -hmm. you know, what is it that you want to achieve? What is realistic? And those kinds of things. And so to some extent, that makes the goals more manageable. It makes them more realistic. Everybody's on the same page. Um, and it also means that the, the, the athlete's not going to be sort of setting goals for themselves that are completely unrealistic. Um, and, you know, not without sort of wanting to sort of damp, damp down their, their, their ambitions or anything like that but making sure that it's, it's sufficiently optimistic and sufficiently achievable um, so as to be motivated. Excellent, excellent, great insight. Now, just before we finish up, do you have any mantras or philosophies that you live your life by? Um, yeah, don't look back, look forward. I think those, that's really important. Um, you know, of course you can dwell on your past experiences, that's important because that gives you confidence, um, but, but looking ever forward is extremely important. Um, to, to move forward so I think that's one of the, the key things that I always look to excellent and what's your definition of success um, that's, that's a very good question and uh, you throw me there I suppose look you know for me in terms of my sporting ambitions it was all about sort of personal best achieving personal best and so triathlon is a, is a, is a sport that's kind of dominated by you know, power outputs and times and, and things like that. So obviously achieving those is extremely important. As I get older, I have to kind of, it, it's, it's, I'm not the athlete I was, you know, and so you, you have to kind of be realistic about that. But you also have to do that relative to, to, to your age. And also, you know, I've got a job now. You know, I'm not an athlete, you know, I'm not a full-time athlete. I'm, I'm sure you, you feel the same. You know, you're not the full-time athlete you used to be, but you have goals. You have goals in, in different areas of life. And so success, you know, for me now is measured against not only what I do, you know, in terms of sport, I'm still, I'm still an athlete, but also in terms of um, what I do in terms of my profession. Um, and, you know, ultimately you want to be the best version of you that you can be. Absolutely. Great answer. And now, how can anyone um, listening or watching, how can they follow you and, and sort of learn more about you? I know... I've spent a bit of time last night and this morning researching some of your stuff. It was fascinating, and I'll probably spend a bit more time learning some of your studies. But too kind. Where can people go to to, to follow you? Um, yeah. Okay. So I have a website. Um, so it's martinhager.com. Yeah. We'll um, put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks. And um, and also I have a Twitter handle. Again, it's just at martinhager. Uh, so I tweet, you know, mostly stuff about research on. Uh, health psychology, sports psychology, exercise psychology, um, those kinds of things. Okay, awesome. Martin, thank you so much for your time. It's been very insightful and I'm sure our viewers will really enjoy all that um, wisdom and knowledge you've shared with us. Fantastic, thank you. Thank you. And there you have it, legends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Martin Hager is a brilliant thinker and someone we can all learn a lot from. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. 
I loved how Martin went deep into the imagery, visualization, self-talk, breathing techniques and meditation, etc. All the mental skills and techniques that we teach in our peak performance program. If you enjoyed it or learned something, then please share it with your friends and on your social media pages. Remember to tag me at Skulls5 as I'd love to hear your thoughts. Make sure to share it and connect with Martin as well at www.martinhagger.com and at martinhagger on Twitter. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Cricket Mentoring. We're growing it quickly and have some great content on there, including the video of this interview. Thanks very much for joining me on this episode and being here from the very start. Love to you all. Now go out and get it done, legends.